We are back. On last week's program, we told you about a documentary we think should be seen by everyone who's concerned about our current political and economic situation. We firmly believe that that should include just about every adult in this nation. The film is Why We Fight. Its director is the award-winning Eugene Jarecki. His previous effort was The Trials of Henry Kissinger. Why We Fight examines the forces which motivate the American defense industry to spend more money on our military than all other nations on earth combined. Some powerful forces drive us to these remarkable spending levels, and they are examined in this film. Why We Fight was awarded the prize for Best American Documentary at last year's Sundance Film Festival. In an op-ed piece two weeks ago, Walter Cronkite said, Why We Fight should be required viewing for Americans, but even more for those on Capitol Hill. The film sends a chilling warning that should not be ignored by Congress and our executive branch. We're especially pleased to be joined from New York by the director of this film, Eugene Jarecki. Welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you for having me. President Eisenhower was a five-star general and had been Supreme Allied Commander in World War II. He cannot be accused of being anti-military, yet he worried as he left office that the country might be unable to rein in military spending. Can we discuss his farewell address? Well, I think Eisenhower's farewell address is a remarkable moment in American history, and it was the reason I made the film. It was my discovery of this extraordinary moment by Eisenhower um, that started me off on the track of trying to understand just what did he mean by the military-industrial complex, and how could we see the impact of that uh, concentration of forces in our present condition. And that pursuit, of course, naturally tries to get at the heart of just what drives America to war over a number of decades. And the question was, is Eisenhower providing a kind of, uh, at least the start of an answer to the question why we fight? Well, the term Iron Triangle comes up describing this alliance, the third leg being Congress. And I gather that John Eisenhower told you that the speech was originally set to describe a military-industrial-congressional complex. Can we talk about how military contractors now spread uh, weapons, any weapons construction across the 50 states to get support? Well, it's a process called political engineering, and I don't think it would surprise Eisenhower at all, although I think the depth of it uh, would give him great pause. Eisenhower was concerned, of course, about the role of Congress, which is why in the early drafts of the speech, the formulation had indeed been military-industrial-congressional complex. Uh, he took out the word congressional at the 11th hour, I think, to sort of preserve his spirit of bipartisan cooperation with the democratically controlled Congress at the time. But I think at the end of the day, Eisenhower was afraid of the way in which uh, Congress people uh, could uh, be incentivized by the defense industry and its allies in the military um, to vote for things that were not necessarily good for the American people or for the American interest, but rather were good for a kind of an unsavory combination of interest between what's profitable for the contractor, what might be useful for one branch of service or another uh, at one time, and, of course, then what might be good for the political survival of that congressperson by bringing jobs to the home district. So the way we see it today, it's very, very shadowy, and it's very, very disconcerting. The defense industry thinks to itself when it's about to build a weapon system, not what you and I would think, which is, hey, maybe let's build it all under one roof because that'll, you know, sort of uh, capitalize on economies of scale and other efficiencies being all in one place. They don't do that at all. They think quite the reverse because they not only want to build a weapon system, they want to keep it going. 
and insulate it from attack, from review, from investigation. And the way you do that is by spreading the contracts for every little part of the weapon out across as many congressional districts as possible. The B-2 bomber has a piece of it made in every single U.S. state. And why is that? It's because when that B-2 bomber comes up under review, where people might ask, this weapon which was devised to fight the Soviet Union, does it really still have a purpose in a post-Soviet world where we're fighting terror? Is it a useful weapon for that? Well, then people might start to question it. And when they do, you want people on that committee and across the Congress to be very, very quiet. And the way you get them quiet is by buying their silence and giving them a piece of the action in their home district, jobs, money, etc. Why We Fight focuses on the stories of several people, and I want to discuss uh, Wilton Sexer and, and An Duong, but can we start with the person whose opinion hit me the hardest, Karen Katowski. She worked at the Pentagon's Iraq desk during the ramp-up to war. She'd been in the building on 9-11, but felt that her 20-year career revealed to her how actions undertaken by the military are not primarily motivated by defense needs. Well, I think historically, Karen was a very loyal Air Force, uh, Air Force officer, and ultimately found her way to the Pentagon and was, uh, you know, sort of promoted and promoted, and ultimately found herself working at the Iraq desk, where she was, you know, really given a a first-hand look at the way in which policy can be influenced in what Eisenhower would call an unwarranted way, an inappropriate way inconsistent with our democracy. There are private actors working in Washington who come out of think tanks and other organizations who have uh, an undue influence on what's supposed to be public policy. And that private influence on public policy is something that Eisenhower, in in fact, himself predicted when he warned that if you allowed the military-industrial complex to rise in power and create a kind of momentum toward war, you would create a tempting tool for ideologues, a kind of a machine that's all too at the ready. And so one day's neocon could be another day's evangelist, could be another day's red scare thinker. You know, it just ends up in a position where the checks and balances that are meant to make war a course of last resort um, are obscured and obstructed by uh, forces that are leading unduly to war, looking at war um, as uh, a kind of easier uh, outcome and a path of lesser resistance rather than the path of of last resort. So Karen Kutowski, yes, she spent her, you know, her professional life in the Air Force and then the Pentagon and felt compelled to leave over what she saw as uh, the inappropriate and undemocratic manipulation of policy in the name of going to war. For me, sir, probably the most remarkable moment in the whole film might be when you replay that videotape where George Bush uh, sort of blithely states that, well, he never said Iraq was a link to al-Qaeda. And um, you have experts reiterating that the attacks on 9-11 were associated with Iraq very cleverly. And on a personal level, of course, Mr. Sexer reveals how angry he was to have been misled by all of that. Can we talk about that great disconnect between a war in Iraq and 9-11? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen historically, and this is one of the things the film tries to do, is to put this in a historical context. The war in Iraq is not the first war, unfortunately, in American history, not by any means, in which the American public finds at a point far too late to go back that the reasons they were given up front for going to war turn out not to be true and turn out not to be the reasons that were actually being discussed behind closed doors. Um, you know, we've seen the minutes of the early meetings right after 9-11 of the administration's national security team, and nowhere in those minutes does it, uh, does it articulate any sense that Saddam might be a, a, a force behind 9-11. Nowhere does it suggest that he 
uh, might actually be a threat uh, in connection with 9-11 or events thereafter, but rather just that it was an opportunity to, as Donald Rumsfeld's aides note, uh, hit SH, by which he meant hit Saddam, question mark, which that aide wrote down uh, for Mr. Rumsfeld on the day after the attack. And so the opportunity that 9-11 gave members of the administration who had a preconceived agenda to deal with the business of Saddam Hussein, a business that they saw as unfinished business from Gulf One. It shows an extremely unsavory approach to public policy where an attack that for most Americans was simply a deep tragedy and a, and a shock and a, and, a, and a horror turns out to be seen as useful by people in power. Um, useful, I'd say, without being crass. One year before 9-11, uh, the project for the New American Century, Bill Crystal and others who were advising the administration um, and were seen as kind of having written a bit of a blueprint for the Bush doctrine, uh, they wrote in a document called Rebuilding America's Defenses, which I urge people to Google online and download. They wrote that they wanted to see America take a new role in the world. That would be a more militarized role, a more forward-based role, in fact, a more imperial role. And that in order to actuate that change and uh, realize their aspirations. They said this transformation, quote, is likely to be a long and difficult one, absent a catalyzing incident like a new Pearl Harbor, unquote. That's one year before 9-11, and it speaks to the readiness of those in Washington advising those in power to see an act of tragedy, uh, a horrible event, as something useful for promoting a new kind of po desired policy. In Why We Fight, you give a great deal of screen time to some of America's foremost hawks. William Crystal, you mentioned, also Richard Pearl, leading neocon and Bush policy architect. Did you think it was especially important to promote calm and civil discourse in an era of inflammatory filmmaking? I think it's extremely important. It's what I, at least I try to pride myself on. I, you know, I don't think that the shrill shouting match that's going on on TV or in Washington uh, is is doing anything but killing this country, and I think we all feel weary of it. And any, I think we'd all want to get out of it if we could. It's just sort of we're trapped in uh, a, a program driven not by ourselves as everyday citizens, but rather by Washington, whose parties need to brand name uh, themselves and sort of define themselves, frankly, because of basic policy matters, they become more and more similar. And so. It's, they're, they're playing on our differences as a mode of fundraising and a mode of party, uh, party promotion. Um, and as far as network television goes, it's, it's obviously become clear to the major networks that shrill sells, and that um, particularly in this day and age, shrill that is coherent with the White House and its aspirations sells. And that's a very dangerous development because it, uh, you watch the media begin to walk in a kind of dangerous form of lockstep with the central power. I say as a child of Holocaust refugees that that's the first uh, uncomfortable warning sign of kind of pre-fascism in any society when the media, which is supposed to ultimately be the watchdog of a society, turns its eyes away from its watchdog function and instead follows its master. Um, it's a very dangerous time, and I think that I say this without being shrill myself. I think it's a time where <clears throat> it's entirely possible to find a great deal of common ground between people who might think of themselves as red people and people who might think of themselves as blue people. I think of myself as a purple person, and all across this country I find purple people who really reject uh, that stereotype of red and blue. They have mixed thoughts. They, have, they, they understand some of the ambiguities that we face in a world that is 
on the one hand, of course, has some danger, and on the other hand, uh, needs some sanity. Dwight Eisenhower himself, uh, while looking at the Soviet Union and the possibility of a real destruction for the Soviet Union, not a ragtag group of Islamic threats out there, but rather a, a nation with thousands of warheads trained on our soil at the ready, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was advocating disarmament and was, in fact, disarming the country in some measure. Uh, and that shows a kind of restraint that perhaps only a real general could have, uh, unlike the armchair generals in Washington, who I think are more bent on showing that they actually ha are brave and have military chops. Of course, it's other people's children that are being sacrificed for them. Why We Fight certainly shows how history has repeated itself with military uh, action and intervention and action over these years since, since Eisenhower. Uh, what percentage of the population, be they red or blue or purple, do you think is grasping what is so forcefully driving our system? I think it's very hard to grasp it because it's all around us. It's kind of like air. You know, it's the military-industrial forces that drive America to war have become so powerful and so deeply ingrained in, their, in our society that they, they're almost invisible. Um, they take forms that we don't realize. The corruption of public office by money is so widespread in this country. Uh, Eisenhower himself warned that um, the power of money, he said, is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. And we see that today. We see an extraordinarily unsavory influence of money in public life and uh, public policymakers who are really beholden to special interests of all kinds. The military-industrial complex is perhaps the most glaring version of it because other special interests that can co-opt public policy and, and un and influence policymakers in an inappropriate way, it sort of begins and ends there. Other special interests who influence policy, um, they may influence policy on an economic level. They may cause a policymaker to make certain corrupt decisions and, and create payoffs or create incentives for that. It begins and ends sort of there. The military-industrial version of that special interest influence, uh, of course, has the potential to lead to war. It has the potential to deeply influence the way policymakers perform the cost-benefit analysis associated with considering when this country should go to war. Um, that's a ma major life-and-death uh, magnification of the usual uh, unfortunate business of corrupt politics. We're talking about, of course, a, a triangle here, military, industry, con Congress, but uh, in your film, one of your analysts mentions that think tanks might be also considered a, a fourth component to such extravagant military spending. Can you talk about uh, America's think tanks a bit? And, you know, there are a lot of people at think tanks who will say that the film exaggerates the role of think tanks, because if they, for example, work at a think tank that is unpopular at a given moment or ineffective, they may say, God, we wish we had as much effect as Eugene says we have. So really what I'm saying and what the gentleman in the film says is that the think tanks have risen to a place where uh, it is possible uh, for certain think tanks to have uh, a role that is contrary to how we would imagine our very distinctly defined branches of government to function. And so all of a sudden, the founding fathers took an enormous amount of care to define a group of uh, uh, three branches, the executive, judicial, and legislative branches, with extraordinarily intricate checks and balances operating between them to, uh, to, con to ensure that no one can have more power than another. And all of a sudden, uh, there's this uh, unknown force called think tanks who come along and occasionally have the power to create influences on that structure that unduly um, affect its functioning and actually um, damage the, the extent to which the checks and balances can function as, as imagined and as foreseen. And so that's, that's what I think the danger is. And that's what Eisenhower referred to when he 
warned of the risk of the disastrous rise of misplaced power that could result from the rise of the military-industrial complex. That misplaced power, what does he mean? Power in the wrong hands, power in the hands of people not elected by the people, unappointed, you know, appointed people behind the scenes who we don't know about. I mean, if you asked Americans today who Scooter Libby is, a lot of them would know. Four years ago, if you'd asked Americans who Scooter Libby was, nobody would have known. And yet Scooter Libby was having an extraordinary impact on the inner workings of the policy apparatus between the vice president's office and the Pentagon. And uh, that's one thing Karen Katowski told us, is that when she was at the early meetings where she could first sense the role of civilian, influential civilians on our policy apparatus, she kept hearing his name Scooter tossed around, Scooter this, Scooter that. At one point she turned to someone and said, who's Scooter? And they said, oh, he's from the vice president's office. She said, what's he doing at the Pentagon? <laughs> Good question. Well, for me, Mr. Drecke, perhaps the most surprising thing about why we fight was your noting in the film, or someone noting in the film, that um, uh, having no exit strategy going into Iraq makes a great deal of sense if you conclude that we really don't have any intention of exiting. I mean, I think you have to ask yourself, at a time where the United States is facing the rise of new players like China, and we are also noticing that we are not uh, necessarily going to remain primary in the world. And that's a great fear for many Americans. It's not so much for me, but I think that a lot of Americans fear losing this primary status. In fact, this primary status is extremely expensive in blood and treasure. And in order to maintain it, we seem to be willing to pull, it, pull out all the stops um, simply to hold on to that kind of status. I think we're afraid of the rise of China. I think in large part you can trace the Iraq war back to a fundamental fear of allowing the resources of the world to fall into the hands of a rising country like China more than ourselves. You just saw yesterday a news story about Russia having supposedly fed Saddam Hussein's secrets about the American war plan. These animosities between major powers run deep and the competition for privacy runs deep. And a lot of, you know, practical and cynical people will say, well, that's just how it is. Nations fight for gain and they... They, they fight for resources, they fight for treasure and all of that. And I suppose there's a lot of truth in that, certainly historically there is. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing to, to recognize as the people of this society is just how far are we willing to go. I mean, the occupation of the country of Iraq, which has the byproduct of putting a puppet regime under American control, at least this was the goal, uh, in OPEC, and uh, occupying a piece of land right between Saudi Arabia and Iran at a time of increasing instability in the Middle East. That may not yield stability, but it may yield an instability that we can better control. It's sort of like the lesser of evils in the minds of policymakers. If the Middle East is going to be unstable, I guess the theory would go. Uh, better our instability, one caused by a war in which we fire all the first volleys, than somebody else's instability happening to us. Um, it's a pretty crass notion, but I think what we're seeing play out is, yes, permanent bases in Iraq, which Barbara Lee has just gone up against in Congress, showing that she recognizes how significant an issue it is when the United States starts establishing that kind of footprint in a region. I think it's based on the notion that instability is more our friend, if we can control it, um, than even maybe stability would be. If stability would, for example, allow the free market uh, to give China the opportunity to outbid the United States for control of the region. Well, I'd like to, to outline some steps we, we might take at this point, uh, once, once I think people grasp the, the, how pervasive this problem is. You mentioned numerous Pentagon uh, weapon systems are incredibly expensive, yet seem to have little no utility in the type of war we're engaged with now with terrorist organizations. Did you discover any weapon systems you'd like to see production on halted immediately? 
Sure. I mean, the F-22 has been uh, an outmoded weapon system for far too long. We've spent $70 billion on the F-22 at this point. Um, and the F-22, as you may know, is an air-to-air fighter. It's an aircraft that's meant to do combat in the air. We don't have a single rival that has an air force that we would go to that we would go to war with in the air. And yet, you know, we're fighting a terrorist enemy that doesn't operate on that kind of uh, that kind of weapons platform. And yet, we keep funneling money into this F-22. Um, we have shrunk the number of F-22s tremendously, but of course, that means that the per unit cost continues to rise. That's 70 billion right there. I wonder what that could do for America's schools. I wonder what it could do for America's ability to compete with China in this risingly competitive atmosphere. And then I look at the Star Wars system, which we've spent $170 billion on at this point, and I would ask the question, of course, what would Star Wars have done on 9-11? How would Star Wars, would it have stopped the planes from hitting the tower? No. Would it have helped the Pentagon? No. Would it have helped those people who died in the field in Pennsylvania? No. And so there's another $170 billion spent for what? To fight weapon systems, essentially, uh, belonging to enemies that no longer exist, and yet these are lucrative systems, so they keep getting fed. And this is why Eisenhower recognized that pork corruption is a threat to national security, because even if you weren't looking to better fund our education or health care infrastructure, if you were simply looking for good weapon systems, wouldn't you take that money away and put it into weapons or defense uh, platforms that could be helpful for the particular threats we face? Wouldn't it be good to hire more men? If we're fighting a man-to-man war right now, if we're trying to do a police action in an, in an aggrandized sense. And so just sort of, you know, you can sort of see the corruption is a threat to national security in the very blunt sense of misplacing resources into phony forms of defense that are just corrupt forms of defense that are just lucrative to certain players. But on the other hand, I think Eisenhower has a deeper wisdom, which is that every dollar you spend on a bomber, for example, is a dollar you, I guess, fail to spend on the levies. And so on the morning of Katrina, you wake up to find that your own people are uh, vulnerable to the floods, uh, but at least you're very safe against the Soviet Union, which never, which doesn't even exist anymore. Eisenhower once said, God help this country when someone sits at this desk who doesn't know as much about the military as I do. What can we do personally to lobby for more sanity in our spending? Um, I think there's the, the most important thing people can do there are going to be in Iowa and New Hampshire in the, in the upcoming congressional caucuses, there's going to be something called a common sense budget amendment, uh, which was devised, uh, among other people, by Lawrence Corp, former undersecretary under, of defense under Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, Lawrence Corp has looked at the defense spending in the United States, done an analysis called the Corb Report, K-O-R-B, that people can download online. And it shows exactly where significant cuts could be made in the Pentagon's budget and have those funds are reallocated toward desperately needing areas of our society. I mean, at a time where we see ourselves building bridges and printing textbooks for the children of Iraq, when our own children are drowning and uneducated in the streets of New Orleans, I think we need to heed the advice of smart military people, uh, many of whom weighed in before this war, warning this administration it was a bad idea. It doesn't fall to a military person to have to run the country. It falls to people uh, to run the country who respect democracy. And part of democracy is hearing the views of a wide range of people and quarantining the military out of their decision-making process was a grave mistake by this administration. But it wasn't only the military that spoke in, in very, very disconcerted terms about this war. Um, there was one place where the American uh, left uh, was in great cahoots, I think, actually, with the, with, uh, the old guard of the military. And I don't think Brent Scowcroft ever heard himself 
um, called left, and yet he was uh, voicing the same kind of reservations about this war that um, Noam Chomsky was. So it made funny bedfellows because there was some common sense that the administration was uh, ignoring. And I think going forward, whoever it is, whether it's John McCain or anyone else, uh, the country's going to have to do a great deal of healing. Um, but it may yet be, and this is what you asked about the economic condition, it may yet be that we're in for much rougher times than we've yet seen. We may indeed find ourselves in a position where we are very, very unprepared uh, for things that are coming toward us. Um, we're really unprepared to compete with other countries at the moment who are rising. We see the incredible outsourcing, not only of knucklehead jobs from America, but of very high-tech jobs. When that kind of thing happens, it speaks to um, the, the rising competitive edge that other countries have at a time where I don't actually think we can afford to, to fall behind that way, but we are falling behind that way. I think Eisenhower would be deeply concerned that we are bankrupting ourselves, not only spiritually, as I mentioned, but also economically. Because after all, by spending these kind of numbers and by throwing this kind of uh, corrupt money into defense in a sort of bottomless, reckless fashion, um, we find ourselves also in a position where who are we bankrupting ourselves to but our major competitor? Um, and so at the end of the day, I think China is looking at this situation, probably looking at our war in Iraq very much the way we all looked at the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan as a kind of a useful distraction so that while China rises, we are mired in the sands of Iraq. Um, and uh, that's very, very lucrative for them and uh, very, very internally destructive for this country. Eugene Jarecki, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. The film is Why We Fight. It is in currently in theaters across the country. We recommend very highly that you all see it. The, uh, the farewell speech by Dwight Eisenhower also includes the following. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for more in our third segment.